This sermon was preached by Peter Nakotra, head pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Woodhaven, Queens. Grace Baptist was planted in 2001 and is seeking to reach South Queens and North Brooklyn with the gospel. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.gbcny.org. Please feel free to distribute the sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Well, for over the last six months, Jesus has been telling His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem, where He will be put to death by the Jewish leaders and rise again three days later from the dead. Uh, and He has been deliberate in His march toward Jerusalem. Uh, and, 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 and He wants to be there for the Passover feast, where He will fulfill uh, what the Passover foreshadowed and become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of all of His people. And for about five days or so, since he's ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey to the shouts of Hosanna to the son of David, he has been ministering in Jerusalem during the daytime and has retreated at nighttime to Bethany, which is about two miles away. Well, in the verses we read today, verses 6 to 13 of Matthew 26, we have what is known as Jesus' anointing at Bethany. And Matthew and Mark and John all record this event for us. Luke, in Luke 7, uh, we have an account of Jesus being anointed by a woman uh, in Simon the Pharisee's house, but it is clearly a different event at a different time and in a different place. Now, there is an apparent time difference between Matthew and Mark and then John's Gospel. It seems Matthew and Mark are saying that this anointing is taking place two days before the Passover, while John says in John 12:1 that it is actually six days before the Passover. And the answer to this discrepancy is that is, it is what John said. It is six days before the Passover. You see, Matthew and Mark never, never say the anointing was two days before the Passover, but that in just two days, or two days before the Passover, the Jewish leaders were plotting to kill him. So there's no contradiction. It's just that Matthew and Mark have, have placed the anointing out of its chronological order. Well, we need to use all three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and John, uh, if we're to actually understand what is going on and grasp and glean the great truths and the beautiful, glorious truths contained in it. Uh, and in this event, I think what we will see uh, is we'll see what true love is and we'll see what really true devotion is and what true worship to Jesus looks like uh, and what, what, a, what the priority of the Christian life ought to be. Uh, and I tell you that these verses are rich and they're full of beauty. And I, I pray that we can really just scratch the surface of them and hopefully grow. Grow in our love for Jesus. Only Jesus. So what I'd like to do is look at these verses using a three-point outline. And if you have a bulletin on the back of that bulletin, you'll see the outline. The devotion displayed. The devotion denounced. The devotion defended. And so let's read again verses 6 and 7. The devotion displayed. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it out on his head as he sat at the table. Well, Matthew says Jesus is in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. And we know that Simon can't be a leper now because Jewish law would never allow a Jew to even be close to a leper, let alone eat a meal with a leper. So Simon was once a leper. But he wasn't a leper anymore. Uh, and since there was no cure for leprosy in that day, I think it's a very safe conclusion to say that Jesus had healed him of his leprosy in the past. 
And the reason he's called Simon the leper is because he was once a leper. Kind of like Simon the zealot or Matthew the tax collector who were no longer a zealot and no longer a tax collector. Well, Jesus and his disciples are at Simon's house and John tells us that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom, by the way, Jesus has just recently raised from the dead, are there as well. And what they have to do with Simon, commentators are all over the place, but we really don't know. We don't know. They're just together. They're somehow connected. Believers. Uh, and they also have the twelve disciples, and maybe others as well are at this meal. And Matthew tells us a woman came into him with an alabaster flask of costly fragrant oil. And she pours it on his head as he sat at the table. And you need to know that sitting at the table doesn't really mean sitting at the table like you and I know sitting at the table. It really means sitting on the floor with your sort of your, on your left hip, you're your leaning on your left arm and your legs sort of out toward the back of you. That's how they sat, with your legs to the side. And John tells us that this woman is actually Mary. And she, poured, she pours out 12 ounces of costly oil of spikenard, or nard, we're told. And spikenard was a very fragrant plant that came from India. And it was hard to get, and it was really expensive. In fact, it was so expensive that Judas says in John that it's worth 300 denarii. And 300 denarii was the equivalent in that day of 300 days of work, or roughly, saying it today, about 20,000 bucks. Right, so you have this alabaster flask worth about 20,000 bucks. And, and a flask, this alabaster flask, is actually a bottle made out of like a fine stone uh, and with the purpose of holding perfume. Uh, and it had a long, thin neck and a round bottom, and that was to keep the oil from sort of gushing out fast. Uh, and Mark tells us that she breaks the top of the flask and then pours out the oil on Jesus' head. And John adds that she pours it on his feet. And then she actually wipes his feet with her hair. So then literally the oil is, is going from his head and going down onto his feet and covering his body. And he himself says in verse 12 that she poured out this oil on my body. And John tells us that the whole house is filled with the fragrance of this oil. Now, as I said, this is extremely expensive perfume. And it may have been an heirloom. It may have been. And it, it was often kept for one's burial. And it may have been Mary's most valuable possession. Most likely was. Now, if someone owned such a, an expensive perfume today, they would probably keep it tucked away somewhere, right? Or in a locked box, maybe a safe in the house or a special drawer. You just wouldn't leave it out or any friend to come by and spritz it on themselves, you would, you would put it out of sight. You would keep it out of sight. Well, in the midst of all the people in Simon's house, in the midst of this meal going on, Mary takes the flask, goes behind Jesus, and Mark says she breaks the flask. All right? And what that means is that she breaks the top of this thin neck so that the oil could flow out very freely. And it's, like, it's, it's like the poor spouts. You know, like like oil and vinegar and stuff like that, to have the spout that dribble, 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 right? You don't want to pour a lot out. So it's like that kind of thing. And what she does is she breaks the top part so it flows out, comes out gushing out. And so she breaks it so it flows out, meaning that this thing is not going to be, you know, sealed up again. So when she broke the flask, this meant that she was never, ever going to ever again seal this flask, right? And, and again, it was always designed to come out in little bits and pieces and drizzles. You see, she intended on using the whole 12 
ounces on Jesus. Here and now. She's using it all. She's using it all. Alright? When she broke that flask, it was the point of no return, if you will. Point of no return. Because whatever she was saving it for, whatever she was saving that perfume for, she will now lavish it all on Jesus. Why not sprinkle maybe? Why not sprinkle maybe a few drops on his head and a few drops on his feet and save the rest for yourself? I mean, we might think that way. Why blow the whole 12? You know, drizzle, drizzle. How much do you need? Right? We might think that way. Why not sprinkle it that way? Save some for yourself. And here's the reason why she doesn't do that. Because she loves Jesus with all of her heart. She values Jesus above everything else in her life. Her heart and her life were transformed by him, and now he was her very life. She's captivated by his beauty. She's mesmerized by his, his love. He was the resurrection and the life, and she knew that. And she was radically transformed by him from the inside out. And his love for her overwhelmed her. And she couldn't help herself. She couldn't help herself but to deeply, deeply love him. And her love for him, as we will see, and, 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 and her understanding of his upcoming death, moves her to worship him. So she takes what is her most valuable possession, and she pours it on him in an act of worship. And understand, when she breaks the flask, it's as if she's saying, it's as if she's saying, you mean more to me than anything in this world. She values him more than her retirement account. She values him more than her 401k, more than her property, more than her home, more than her pension, or any other worldly, wealthy thing that any man could ever value. She values him more. Because he is worth so much more to her. He is worth more than 10,000 ounces of spikenard to her. But all she has is 12 ounces. And she's going to give him the 12. That's what she's got. And he's going to get it all. And she's going to use every drop on him. So she's moved with love. Love for Jesus. Because Jesus loves her. Which she knows she doesn't deserve his love. But that he has freely given her his love. And he will now demonstrate this. He will now show her the ultimate expression of his love by literally going to the cross in just a few days. And she knows it's for her. Well, many have come to this meal. They've come to maybe hear a sermon by Jesus. Maybe just to be around the guy that just maybe a month or two or three ago rose Lazarus from the dead. They want to be around the guy that raises people from the dead. But not Mary. She's not there for that. Right? She comes to worship him. And an expression of her worship was this great and lavish outpouring of the oil, which was on the object of her worship, Jesus Christ. This was an act of love. This was an act of honor and devotion. She thought nothing of pouring out a year's wages on Jesus Christ. It didn't faze her. And you know what? She didn't hold back. You know why? She was controlled by her worship of Him and for Him. And she couldn't hold back. She couldn't hold back. 
And she wasn't trying to impress the crowd. Whoa, look what a big spender Mary is, pouring out $20,000 of oil. She wasn't trying to prove that she was more devoted to Jesus than the rest of those guys. She wasn't doing that. She wasn't trying to do any of that stuff. She was just immersed in the beauty and the wonder of her Lord, and she didn't care what others thought about it. And she didn't care what others said about it. She didn't care. Right? She didn't care about her reputation or how things look to others. And we know this. We know this for two reasons. I'm going to tell you how we know this. For one, because she dried Jesus' feet with her hair, which means she had to let her hair down. She had to untie it. And in that culture, and you need to understand the culture, in that culture, only prostitutes walked around with their hair down in public. It was an unseemly thing to do. Secondly, because she wiped, she wiped his feet, and in that culture, only a slave would ever wash and then dry someone else's feet because it was considered, and I think it might still be today, considered a very demeaning thing to be washing and drying someone else's feet. It was a task that only a slave did. But Mary humbles herself, and she lets down her hair. And like a slave, she dries his feet with her hair. And she doesn't care what the others thought about that. And she doesn't care what they say about that. She only cares about what he thought about that. And we know from verses 10 and 13, he thought very well of that. Kind of reminds us of David in, in 2 Samuel 6, when the ark is being brought back to, to Jerusalem. And David, the king, is dancing and singing and whirling around, right? Because the ark is coming back. Even though one of his wives, Michal, she's, she's humiliated by the fact that he's dancing around in front of all the women. Can't help himself. He's filled with joy. How many Christians are inhibited from worshiping Jesus with all their hearts? And I'm not saying, well, I love you, Jesus, but I mean, it's just loving him and telling people how much you love him. Because they're worried about what others will think. Well, that guy will be God. He's a Jesus freak. Worried. Well, Mary isn't worried. She's not worried about what others think. And she, and she holds back nothing of, of, from him because she's not worried about what other people think. Right? Jesus is the most important person in the world to her. Bar none. And her, her affections are fully given to him. Therefore, she doesn't hold back her affections. And what she's saying is that Jesus is worthy to be extravagantly loved and worshipped. He is worthy of her best. He is worthy of her heart. And he is why? Because he redeemed her. And he saved her. And she doesn't know the, all, the, all the details of the cross, but she knows he's, he's going to do something for her. He knows he's buying a salvation. So she's thankful. And she's so in love with the one who has saved her that she seizes the opportunity and she makes the count for the glory of God. Listen, she loved him more than she loved herself. And she evidenced it by her act of devotion and worship toward him. And I sadly say, including me, there are very few believers who truly love and really love Jesus more than they love themselves. Oh, they love Jesus. They love Jesus, but they, but they also love other things. They have equal agendas or equal thrones, if you will. They love their agendas and schedules and comforts and hobbies and positions and good names and sports and pop, 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 pop. 
So there's a conflict for many. Right? There's a conflict for many. They love Jesus, but, but their love for Christ is not supreme. It doesn't, it doesn't overwhelm all those other loves. It doesn't, it doesn't trump all those other loves. They still love other stuff, and other stuff has a stronghold in their hearts. And the evidence of that is by how they live. The sin they won't put to death. The world they, they grab onto and keep one foot in. They would not be willing to give Jesus their best, nor to serve him with no thought of getting anything in return, right? There are very few who will sacrifice their money or possessions so that the Lord will be worshipped in their giving. There are very few who, who love him extravagantly and give to him that way. There are very few who would break the bank, so to speak, because of their deep devotion to Jesus. No, most of us hold back. We become cautious, a little worried. Right? And we come up with many reasons to be cautious and be worried. So we love him, but we don't love him like Mary. We don't love him with the reckless abandon of Mary. We don't value him above all else like Mary, because we hold back. We calculate. We consider ourselves first. We weigh things out. We waver. And we have doubts. So we never break the flask, so to speak, and pour it all out on Jesus. We dribble it. We trickle a few drops here and a few drops there. We love them when it's convenient and to a point. But very few of us love them like Mary did. So, even when the plate comes around, maybe we throw in 5, 10, 20, 50, whatever. And we think we're lavishing the Lord with our giving. We throw him a few peanuts out of a whole barrel and we feel good about our giving. We live on our schedules and we live by our rules. We fulfill our goals and we think we're living gung-ho for the Lord. We pray for five minutes here and ten minutes there and we think we have communed with God. We give Him a little effort here, a little effort there, and we think He's pleased with our service. We come to church somewhat regularly, maybe. Right? We throw something into the offering plate. We bring our Bibles. We sing the songs. And we think we're living the Christian life. But I'm telling you, this is not loving Jesus like Mary loved Jesus. Romans 12.1 tells us what loving Jesus looks like. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So loving Jesus, like Mary, means giving Jesus everything. Holding nothing back in you. Right? You see, He wants everything. He wants your whole life, including your stuff, but He wants your whole life to be lived for Him and to be used for Him. So everything you are, everything you have, He wants to be offered to Him. And that means time, possessions, abilities, labor, your children, and so on. He wants everything from you, which really isn't much considering He gave everything for you. And He did it when you were His enemy. And he did it when you were an outlaw and a criminal in the high court of heaven. 
So it's not hard for Mary to pour out $20,000 worth of perfume on the Lord because He's worth so much more to her. There's no value on Jesus. We're saying pearl of great price. That's it. He's so much more valuable to her. Therefore, she gives Him her best. Yet I fear that some of us, and I, I put myself on the top of this list, don't give God our best. We hold back. We say we love Him, but we don't really value Him above all because there are things in our lives that we're not willing to give to Him or to hand over to Him or to let Him be Lord over. So worship is hindered by our unwillingness to place Him over everything, to make Him Lord of our time, Lord of our homes, Lord of our families, Lord of our possessions. And I've, I've told you before, I don't even believe in a 10% tithe. For those of you who don't know, I don't believe in a 10%. I don't think it's biblical. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think 10% was the only number in the Old Testament. I, I told you, if you listen to the sermons, I, God wanted 23 and a third percent every year, right, in the Old Testament. And so I don't believe in a 10% tithe. You can't show me in the New Testament from the book of Acts on a 10% tithe. I don't see that. If you want to give 10%, amen, do it. I think that would be a great blessing. But I don't see that. I don't see a mandated number in the New Testament. What I see is a mandated heart, right? To give joyfully, sacrificially, right? I mean, to give cheerfully. I see an, I see an uninhibited heart to want to give back because of your great, because of his indescribable gift to you, his son. And I don't believe in manipulating people or guilting people to give. I don't like that myself. But I know this. Our giving is a reflection of our hearts for Him. Our giving is a reflection of our hearts for Him. And it is a reflection of our worship to Him. And, and just as an aside, I mean, we're not really a great giving church as far as a body goes. And it's all a matter of the heart. And when He owns your heart, guess what? He owns everything else as well because you can't help but give him everything else when he's got the heart. And when he owns your heart, you're glad to give him everything else with it. So we see the devotion displayed. Now denounced in verses 8 and 9. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Well, she pours out the 12 ounces of extremely valuable and expensive oil on Jesus. Uh, and again, John tells us the whole house is filled with the fragrance of the oil. Uh, and, and then Matthew says, when his disciples see this, they become indignant. But John tells us where this originates from. Right? In John 12, 4 and 5, right? same, same account. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, notice all the qualifiers and descriptors, right, said, why this fragrant oil, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So Judas, Judas, the one who would betray him, he has a problem with his valuable oil being poured out on Jesus. When it could have, could have been sold for a ton of money, and then that money could have been given to the poor. But Judas doesn't really care about the poor, as we'll see in a moment. Well, Judas says what he says, and the other disciples say, he's right. He's right. She's pouring, she's pouring out like $20,000 of, of expensive stuff on Jesus, and it's just hitting the floor. Right? It's just hitting the floor. And this is money that could have been used to help the poor. And so they say in verse 8, why this waste? Why are you wasting good money? 
Right? Why are you wasting this precious stuff on Jesus, letting it fall onto the floor? You know, it's like, and I do this all the time, in the wintertime, right? You have the heat on, and someone in the house has got the window open. And what do you say? We're throwing money out the window. Right? And we get, we get upset. Well, I hope you get upset. Right? We get upset because we've got the heat on, and we're paying, but if you pay, of course. Right? And then your know, window's open, and it's like you're, you're causing money to be spent for no reason. And we do that. But that's what they're saying. Why are you wasting this good stuff and letting it dribble off of Jesus and onto the dirt? And so, so the disciples scold Mary. They rebuke her for such a thoughtless act. You see, they didn't see Mary's act as an act of worship. Instead, they saw it as an act of waste. They couldn't see her heart of devotion and love for Jesus. All they could see was expensive oil hitting the ground. Now, Judas, of course, could care less about the poor. For we read in John 12, 6, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. And he used to take what was put in it. All right? So he's the, uh, he's the apostle's treasurer, if you will, and he's going into the till. He's a thief. And he sees the oil, and he starts salivating, thinking how he might use that money. How it might feel in his pockets, should they have pockets and those things that they wore. Right? And, and, but the disciples, more than likely, seriously did care about the poor. Because Jesus, and get this, he often helped the poor. Besides miraculously healing them, but he also helped them financially. He helped the poor. And we know this at the Last Supper when, when Jesus told Judas, what you do, do quickly. Right? And then we read the apostles. They're like, well, what is he talking about? Where's Judas going? Why is he going? And we read this in chapter 13, verses 28 and 29. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. No, no. The other, the other 11, like, why did Jesus say this? For some thought, because Judas had the money box, he's the treasurer, that Jesus said to him, buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So that was the norm. Jesus got money in from people donating to the ministry. Give some of it to the poor people. So what you have here in Judas is an unsaved leader swaying the other eleven to condemn a woman who is selflessly worshipping Jesus. And you see how careful we need to be who we allow into leadership in the church because one unspiritual worldly man can sway the people of God into a worldly direction. Well, the disciples are indignant. And that means they're very angry and they're fuming mad. And they're mad because they see Mary's act as useless squandering of, of a costly possession. Now listen, there is nothing given to Jesus. There is nothing given to Jesus out of a heart of love that is ever a waste. It is never a waste. It is not a waste to give generously and abundantly to advance the kingdom. It is not a waste to take a lesser paying job so that you can be more active in the kingdom. It is not a waste to let your child go into the ministry or go onto the mission field. It is not a waste to forego entertaining yourself to do personal or family devotions. It is not a waste to spend nine hours in the emergency room with somebody for, for a hurting saint or anyone else. It is not a waste to financially send a young man to seminary or to buy him books or pay for online classes. It is not a waste of time to hand out gospel tracts or to hand out VBS flies. And by the way, we're going to need you to help. Coming up soon. Wendy will get you. It is not a waste. It is not a waste to deny yourself a couple of dinners to help send a brother or a sister to a conference 
or a kid to youth camp. It is not a waste. Right? The point is, it is not a waste of your time. It is not a waste of your money to further the gospel or to edify the saints. It is never a waste. It's an eternal investment. And those investments, they count and they last forever. And I know, I know to the world and to your unsaved friends and to your unsaved relatives, it looks like a waste. I know it does. I remember, before I was saved, I used to use the same accountants over and over again. And the deal I had with him was, basically, do anything you've got to do, cut any corner, you know, that nobody will get, I won't get in trouble for, and get me back as much as possible. And he would say, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And so, he used to put down that I would donate, uh, like, like the, the, whatever the maximum was that nobody would ever bother you. But I never gave a dime to anybody because I was cheap as could be. And so, and, and I really was. I had a, such a stingy heart. And so, now I get saved. And God is working on me in every area of life, and this is one of them. And so, now I'm, I'm, at, I'm becoming a giver, and I'm growing in giving. And so, I'm still going to the same accountant, and, and he sees my giving, and he says, what are you doing? He goes, what are you doing? Well, I said, you know, my heart is changing. And, and I was intimidated. He was an older guy. He was the head of the accounting firm, you know. And I'm 31 or 32, whatever. And he says, what are you, crazy? Because I was giving a lot more than what he was even saying I was giving than I wasn't. And, and he said, what are you, crazy? You're going to hurt your daughter's future. And he yelled at me. And I'm saying, I'm paying this guy to yell at me. Right? And so I said to my wife, I said, I'm not going to go there anymore. I'm going to find a Christian accountant. But he said, what a waste. You're wasting your money giving it like that. But listen, you haven't wasted a thing. You haven't wasted a thing that you've given to the kingdom and for the case and for the cause of the kingdom and for Jesus Christ. Because Jesus will say, you have done a good work for me. You have done a good work for me. So they ridiculed Mary. They tried to make her feel bad for what she did for Jesus. And they did this because they did not think Jesus was worthy of that kind of love and that kind of worship. They just didn't think he was worthy of it. And she, to them, was a little too fanatical. You know, some people give themselves to making money. And you know what they're called? Successful. And some men, they give themselves to higher learning. And you know what they're called? Intellectual. And some people give themselves to becoming great athletes. And you know what they're called? Heroes. But if a person gives themselves to a life of devotion to Jesus Christ, you know what they're called? A fanatic. A fanatic. And they say they're wasting their time and they're wasting their life. But you know what is a waste? You know what a waste is here? Not giving Jesus your best. Not giving Him everything in you. Everything you have. It's a waste to not live for Him. It's a waste to not hold your stuff loosely and if He wants us to give it. To not be at His beck and call for everything in life. That's a waste. What a waste to know the gospel. To claim to believe the gospel. And yet, and yet not be fully sold out to the very Lord of the gospel. That's a waste. And on the last day, you will know it's a waste. And so we see the devotion displayed, the devotion denounced, and lastly, the devotion defended. Verses 10 to 13. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the pole of you always, but me, you do not have always. 
For in pouring this fragrant oil, for in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done uh, will be told as a memorial to her. Well, Jesus becomes aware of the disciples' indignation with Mary and their displeasure over, the, over their belief of the wasted oil that could have been given to the poor. And what does he do? He defends Mary. And notice, notice in this whole account, Mary never says a word. But Jesus defends her. And he did this, if we go back to Luke chapter 10, when Martha, her sister, was complaining when, when Jesus was at their house and, and Martha's doing all the cooking and she's doing all the cleaning and she's getting all, the, all the, the plates or whatever ready for the meal and Mary isn't helping her because she's sitting at Jesus' feet and she's learning and listening to him. And Martha says, Lord, tell her to help me. And Jesus says this, Martha, Martha, you are, and again, Mary never said a word, Martha, Martha, you were worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. So again, he defends her. And may I say that we don't need to defend ourselves when we're being accused of doing something or anything for Jesus' sake or when we're living according to his word. He'll defend us. And on the last day, he will vindicate us when he's separating the sheep and the goats. Trust me, brothers and sisters, he will vindicate us. Well, Jesus says to his disciples, why do you trouble her? Because she hasn't wasted this money. Right? She's done a good work for me. And remember, about the sheep and the goats in chapter 25, he said, if anyone does anything for one of mine, you've done it for me. Well, Mary literally did it for me. She literally did a good work for Jesus. She has literally done something to bless him. And as we said with the parable of the talents, anything that glorifies God is a good work. Anything. And the Greek word good here is better translated beautiful. Right? So she did a beautiful work. It was a beautiful work. And listen, Jesus sees her valuing him above all else as a beautiful work. And he sees her giving her most valuable possession to worship him as a beautiful work. Right? And, and loving adoration and worship of Jesus Christ is the most beautiful work any Christian could ever do. It's a beautiful work. So the valuable oil was simply a means of expressing her devotion and love to Jesus. And Jesus said, that's beautiful. That is a beautiful work that Mary has just done. And brothers and sisters, the question is, are you and I worshiping him in such a way that he would see what you do and what I do, and how you think, and how I think, as a beautiful thing. What do you say? That's a beautiful work. About us. What do you see the deeds we perform out of selfless love as a beautiful work? Are we worshiping Him in such a way that He would say that about us toward Him? Will it be a beautiful work how you serve the Lord this week? When no one's around and you're just going about your business, will it be a beautiful work with whipping through your mind and my mind? Will it be a beautiful work what you throw in the offering plate as it passes by? Will he consider that a beautiful work? Well, Jesus and accepts the gifts of every yielded heart, whatever they are. And therefore, they are a beautiful work. If it is anything done or given or said or thought 
to glorify Him, He accepts it as beautiful. Well, in Mark 14, same account, Jesus tells His disciples that Mary has done what she could. Meaning, she can't go to the cross for me. She couldn't soften the blow that He was going to receive by His Father, right, being smitten at the cross. She couldn't do that. She couldn't change the, the hardened, hated hearts of, of the Jews who wanted Him dead. She couldn't do any of those things. But she did what she could. And that is that she worshipped the very one she loved and she stayed close to the one she loved. And the question for us is, are we doing what we can to make His name known among the nations? Are we doing what we can to advance His kingdom in our place and in our time? Are we using everything the Lord has given us for the Lord? And if we are, then we are doing what we can. Then we are doing what we can. Well, Jesus says this. He says, you have the poor with you always, but me you don't always have. And, and what he's saying is, there's always going to be poor people to help. There's never going to be a shortage of poor people to help. And you should help them. And he's going back actually to Deuteronomy 15, where they're commanded to help the poor. Right? And I just told you that Jesus gives to the poor. Take money out of the money box and gives it to the poor. And the New Testament tells us to be merciful to our fellow man and to do good to all and so on. But Jesus is only with them for a little while longer. And he is more important than poor, the poor people. And here's the principle here. And you've got to get the principle. The principle is this, that Jesus and his kingdom are more important than social issues. You've got to get that. Jesus and his kingdom are more important than social issues. All right? That the worship of Jesus and the furthering of his gospel takes precedence over helping the poor, the elderly, the orphans, or, or any other social concern. I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things, but they fall way short or below worshiping Him, making Him known. All right, that's the point, right, over any social issue. Again, we should be merciful and benevolent people, yes, especially to the lowly and the hurting and the weak, yes. But we ought to care even more about their souls, even more about the souls of men. And Jesus is stressing the primacy of the spiritual over the social. The primacy of the spiritual over the social. And many churches, I sadly say, have this backwards. They stress the social over the spiritual. So they feed and clothe their fellow man, and they battle all kinds of social and gender issues and racial issues, but they don't bring those people the gospel. They don't tell them the truth of the gospel. And what ultimate good is it if you give a man three meals a day for the next 50 years, but you never share the gospel with him? What good is it? Right? You fill his belly, but he's still an enemy of God. He's still at enmity with his creator. And he will stand before Jesus one day as his judge. Listen, social work may relieve many suffering people today in the here and now, but it can never cure or atone for sins. It can't do that. Nor can it ever bring a person into a right relationship with God. So we must never turn the gospel of Jesus Christ into a social gospel. You get the difference. I'm not saying we shouldn't help anybody. I didn't say that. We should help people. We should be loving and, and generous and kind. And yes, 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 yes. But the gospel overall. Church's primary task is the advancement of the gospel for the glory of God. That's it. Primary task. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. And the fruit of that, the fruit that will come from that, 
will be the mercy and the benevolence and all of those other things to our fellow men. That's the fruit that will flow from that. Well, Jesus doesn't want his disciples to worry about the perfume as if it had been wasted because he says it wasn't. He said, don't fixate yourself on the poor. Instead, he wants them to understand uh, what Mary has done was done with a heart uh, uh, that loves him. Uh, and what she has actually done is she has anointed his body for his burial. Uh, and Jesus has told them time and time and time again that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to die, and, and they couldn't grasp it. But it somehow, amazingly, Mary did. She listened carefully to his teaching. She heard what he said, and she believed him. And the reason she heard him, because unlike the disciples, she's not jockeying for a position in the kingdom. Right? She's not worried about what her status is going to be when the kingdom is consummated, whatever that means to any of them. She's not seeking glory for herself. Right? She is seeking to be close to Jesus. Now, I am sure she did not understand all the details of the crucifixion and the resurrection and stuff, but she understood that he was going to die for her and die for his people. And she, and, and she knew that, she, that he, she was one of his people. And, and, but the disciples, they don't get this. They don't hear this. And it's amazing because even the Jewish leaders, as you see in Matthew 27, they, they knew what he said, that he was going to die and rise again three days later. So they said, you better put, this deceiver is going to come, you know, the, the disciples are going to steal his body and, and, and then they're going to say he rose again because he said he was going to rise again. So even the Jewish leaders, they, they heard that. But for some reason, the disciples aren't grasping that. Well, Mary heard those things and she believed, therefore she anoints Jesus' body for his burial, which is a symbolic act in her case in an anticipation of his upcoming death. Of course, anointing with spices always happens after you die. Right? You didn't put on the stuff before you died, you put it on after you died to make it smell nice for the first couple of days. And we know when Jesus came off the cross, when Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took him off the cross, they wrapped his body in over a hundred pounds of, of spices and ointments and stuff. And they when someone's dead. But she did it in preparation, anticipation of his death. Right? And so, 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 and, and you know what? And she understands the resurrection to some degree because he says he's the resurrection and the life. And what? She saw him raise her brother. Then Jesus says to his disciples, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what Mary has done is going to be memorial to her. And when he says the whole world, it's an implication. And it should be an encouragement, actually, that the gospel is actually going to go out to the whole world. And you've got to believe that they don't see the gospel going anywhere at that point because things are falling apart fast. But you know what? That prophecy was fulfilled and is still being fulfilled. And as I sit up here preaching it today, it is again being fulfilled. And what's amazing in all of that is that Mary anoints Jesus as a memorial to him and what she does actually becomes a memorial to her. And there have been thousands and thousands of kings and leaders and influential people throughout history, but we really don't have a clue about what any of those people did. They've lived and died and maybe we know their name but know nothing else. But what this humble woman did will be remembered for as long as there is time because of her act of worship toward Jesus. And that's because Jesus honors those who honor him. Well, in closing, let me tell you what I am not trying to do. I am not trying to make you give more. I am not trying to make you do more things. That would be guilting you. That would be legalism. That would be hurtful. And that would not be helpful. All right? I am not trying to do that. But let me tell you what I am trying to do. I am trying to get you and me to view Jesus more like Mary viewed Jesus. 
that we would have a greater adoration and love for Jesus. That we would grow leaps and bounds in selfless worship of Jesus. That we would value Him above everything else in this life, including our own lives. That our devotion to Him would be pure and unmixed with fears and worries and lack of trust. That like Mary, we would pour out our hearts to Him because He poured out His life for us. Which He did because He loved us more than anyone could ever love us, including ourselves, and He demonstrated that for us by dying for us. And taking our mountain of sin and leveling it into dust. So my heart's desire for me and my heart's desire for you is not that we would give more, not that we would serve more, but that we would love Him more. That we would be people, the people of God, who would be head over heels in love with Jesus. And trust me, if we love Him that way, if our hearts are swelled high and far for Him, we'll give generously, sacrificially, we'll serve sacrificially, we'll do all of that stuff. I mean, it'll just be the natural overflow of a heart filled for Him. We'll, we'll put sin to death and we'll be, we'll be on the mortification path because we want to honor Him because we love Him. We love the one that thrills our souls. And so then the question is, how do we love and worship Jesus like Mary? How do we? And I think the answer is, we do what Mary did. And that is, we ought to continually be at the feet of Jesus. Every time you see Mary in the Scriptures, you're going to find out where she is. She's at His feet all the time. Luke 10, 39 and 40. Now it happened as they went and entered a certain village. And a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into a house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. There she is, at his feet, real close. Right? When Jesus comes into Bethany after Lazarus dies, we read in John 11.32, that when Mary came to Jesus and saw Jesus, him, she fell down at his feet. And now at the anointing, where is she? She is on the floor, drying his feet with her hair. She's right up to him. She's right there. Mary spent a lot of time listening and learning and worshiping at Jesus' feet. And Jesus said, she has chosen the better thing. She has chosen the better thing. Right? And, and maybe our love for him would grow if we would choose the better thing. Maybe it would grow for him if we would choose the better thing. And the better thing is getting to know Jesus better by reading his word and meditating on his word and in his person and in his work and in his glorious coming again and having fellowship concerning the things of Jesus. I think those are the things that cause us to grow. All right? and, but many of us are busy with unprofitable things or maybe even good things, but they're not the better thing. So we need to sit at the feet of Jesus. We need to listen to the words of Jesus. We need to ponder who Jesus is. And listen, I don't think Mary was just sitting there and getting the facts. You know, I mean, all right, he said this, he said that, he said this, he said that. Got it, got it, got it, got it. I know a lot about this guy. I don't think, I know she's getting facts and she's learning, but I think it's much more. I think as she's sitting at his feet and she's gazing into his eyes as she hears him speak, she's falling in love with him. She's seeing.